it's really hard to get any sense of what life was like in the past. This week, I'm going to take you on a journey to medieval Norwich by investigating the elite world of 1288 and considering the social realities that it exposes. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm your host, Sam, and today I'm going to take you on a deep dive of the 1288 Norwich elite role. As a social historian, one of my primary goals is to learn as much as I can about how people lived in the past. In some ways, that can be more complex than reconstructing the political narrative because while people recorded the deeds of kings in their courts, they were much less likely to write down mundane things about how they lived. This is especially true for the poor, who were often illiterate. Today, I thought I might take you through one source that I have used a lot to think about how people lived in the Middle Ages. My story begins in 1288, when about 160 men gathered in or near the toll house in the city of Norwich, just as they had the year before. Their city was one of the larger, more prosperous towns in England. It had a cathedral and a royal keep that hadn't actually been inhabited by a king in a generation. But by continental standards, the city was actually quite small. There's no way to calculate the size of the town exactly, but Elizabeth Rutledge has looked at the population of Norwich in 1311 and determined that there were close to 10,000 people living there at that time. The city was also growing, however, so the population would have been somewhat lower than that in 1288. The men who assembled in the public square in Norwich were called capital pledges and it was their job to report the misdeeds that had taken place in their section of the city over the past year. This mechanism for reporting misbehavior was a common one, and was used to report misdemeanors in both cities and villages. Norwich was large enough that it was divided into 11 subleets that corresponded to parish boundaries within the city. Each of these areas was represented by at least 12 men, though some of the wealthier areas of the city actually had significantly more capital pledges, which suggests that service as a capital pledge could allow men to protect their business interests. Twelve men from South Conisford were called up first. After they were sworn in, the four bailiffs who ruled over the city and presided over its courts asked them about the assaults that had been committed within the previous year. They recalled that Arnold de Castro had drawn blood from Pube de Promholm and that Nicholas Leger had wounded a stranger in the street. They reported that John de Witten had been beaten up by men who were already in the custody of the bailiffs. Reading through the court rolls, you might notice that there were a lot of men named John. In fact, studies of naming patterns in England revealed that almost half of men in England were named John. It wasn't even unusual for a man to name more than one of his sons John. This may have happened in part because only about half of the population lived past the age of 10, so occasionally a second son might simply have been a replacement for the first. But sometimes we can see grown brothers with the same name. This phenomenon likely reflected the common practice of naming people after friends, family members, people you respected, and above all, people you want something from. After all, wouldn't a wealthy man be more likely to help out the neighborhood boy who had been named in his honor rather than some other random boy? And so, the more men there were named John, the more people who were named John after them, and the cycle continued. But let's get back to the makeshift courtroom. Because although the city had a bunch of different courts, it didn't have a designated courtroom yet. 
After the men in South Conisford had listed the assaults that they were aware of, the bailiffs would have asked them more questions. At some point, they were required to report if any of their neighbors had dumped muck into the street. Because you see, while we envision the medieval city as a disgusting place, and it certainly would not have been clean by modern standards, there were rules. You weren't allowed to leave your garbage in the street. You were not allowed to obstruct a road. You weren't even allowed to dump your excrement upriver from the city, though no one really cared what you did with the water flowing away from the city. So they continued to report more names. At some point, Arnold Pace stepped forward and confessed that he himself had sold ale at an exorbitant price. Now, be honest with yourselves. If you were summoned to court and asked to report illicit activities, would you report the things that you'd done wrong? I have to admit that I'm not sure I would. But in the records of the 13th century, people did, all the time. They reported the misdeeds committed by their sons and by their wives, and they did so knowing that they would have to pay fines for their misbehavior. What could spur this level of honesty? Maybe they actually cared about order. Maybe they wanted to make sure that things were done properly and that their city was a safe place to live. Maybe paying a fine here and there was a small price to ensure that the system worked effectively. In short, they might have cared more about the well-being of their community than about their pocketbooks. It's also possible that their honesty stemmed from concern for their souls. Because before they were questioned, every man was given an oath that they would present misbehavior accurately. In an era when oath-breaking was perceived to have a real impact on one's immortal soul and could imperil a person's chances of getting into heaven, willfully breaking an oath was a much bigger deal than it is today for most people. The elite records have thousands of indictments, but only seven of them accuse the capital pledges of withholding information. One final possibility is that the capital pledges actually conceived of themselves different in their capacity as capital pledges than as private citizens, and that in making this differentiation, they were able to look at the world around them in a less biased way, and that was why they were presenting their own misdeeds. And again, we'll never know what the mentality here is, but it's a really interesting aspect to think about. Now, the lead courts included a lot of misbehaviors that were related to economics. Among other things, the capital pledges were required to report anyone who sold their ale at too high a price. And we have lists of people, most of whom were women, who paid small fines for charging excessive prices for ale. Many historians speculate that these fines were effectively taxes for the privilege of selling ale and that they were not actually punitive. And while that conclusion seems likely given the repetition of names in the lists, the fact of the matter is that sales of ale and bread, two of the basic necessities of life in an age where in spite of economic regulations, water was not safe to drink, were at least in theory regulated. There was an unpaid official called an ale conner in most villages and in effectively all towns whose job it was to visit the places selling ale. They were to taste the ale and make sure that it was of good quality, and they were charged with ensuring that ale was sold in regulation-sized containers and for the agreed-upon price. In short, what I'm telling you is that there were measures in place to actively protect consumers in the medieval city. They wanted to make sure that people didn't get ripped off too badly and that they didn't buy rancid meat. 
Another thing to note here is that the vast majority of people who were fined for selling ale in 1288 were women. Unlike beer, which was only really drunk in the Netherlands before the mid-14th century, ale is only stable for a couple of days. That meant that it had to be brewed frequently and in small batches. Judith Bennett has argued rather convincingly that once beer was introduced, it became possible to turn it out in huge quantities. Therefore, that beverage, beer, became a more significant source of profit. At that point, the process of brewing was increasingly perceived as a skilled profession rather than just a supplemental source of income. As perception shifted, we see men start to take over the brewing industry. But before the introduction of beer, the vast majority of brewing was done by women. Most of them were not professional brewers. They were wives who sought to supplement their family's income by brewing ale and selling it out of their homes. Now, this can tell us something about women's work in cities. There is significant evidence that a successful woman had to be a jack-of-all-trades. While most of the time women were not treated as masters of the crafts who could run their own businesses and train apprentices, they participated in a lot of different kinds of work. Women ran shops alongside their husbands. In rural areas, they worked in the fields. Hoeing, for example, was often a task assigned to women. They often learned their husbands' trades well enough that they could run them in the absence of their spouses or even after their husbands died. And there are records of widows being recognized as masters of their crafts. Outside of aristocratic circles, the idea of women as housewives was completely foreign until the end of the 18th century because their labor was absolutely necessary for families to survive. But Although women did real, varied, and often skilled work, they were rarely recognized for it. The society in which they lived was a deeply patriarchal one. You may have noticed that I said before that 160 men gathered to make their reports, and that was completely standard. We have records of thousands of people gathering to report misconduct throughout England, and none of them were women. Women were also excluded from the developing bureaucracies, and unless they came from wealthy families, they were normally barred from receiving a formal education, though the same could be said for most non-elite men. Until she married, a woman was in the household of her father and under his legal authority. She had no right to bring her own suits to court or to trade on her own behalf unless she convinced a man to go to court on her behalf and sue for her right to trade as a femme sole. Once she was married, a woman was effectively under the control of her husband, though she did have a few legal rights. Upon her husband's death, for example, she was entitled to receive her marriage portion, which had been bestowed upon her at the time of her marriage. There are also extremely rare cases of women being granted separations from their husband in cases of extreme abuse, though some abuse was expected and was considered acceptable. The only group of women who had considerable freedoms were widows, though more often than not, widows did remarry, which placed them under the authority and protection of a new man. Widows often married men who practiced the same trades as their late husbands. This practice would allow a woman to put her skills to use, but it also worked out for the men because it allowed the guild to ensure that the dead man's property was still under the control of one of their members. We'll never know if women particularly wanted to find men to whom they could be useful or if they were bullied into it. 
But before I get sidetracked into the realms of speculation, I'd like to return again to the reports being made in the Norwich courts. Another thing the capital pledges would have been asked about in court was the hue and cry. Unless you know me in real life, you've probably never heard of the hue and cry, because it's not really a thing anymore, except in Guernsey, where apparently it's still enshrined in law. But in the Middle Ages, it was a respectable and highly regulated legal mechanism. Effectively, if you were in trouble, you could scream harrow or thief or help, and anyone who could hear your cry was legally required to come and help you and to capture whoever was harming you. But if someone raised the alarm and it was discovered that they were not the victim of an assault, an attempted murder, a break-in, or a theft, or a witness to a murder, they would have to pay a fine for having disturbed the peace. There was no toleration for the boy who called Wolf. And that's because there were actually people responding to the hue and cry, and it would simply be too disruptive to call people away from their work without just cause. Okay, so what's the big picture here? Every year in Norwich, there were 11 groups of men, ranging in number from 12 to 27 local representatives, who were asked to report on their neighbors. And they did. In the surviving records, they reported as many as 1,231 finable offenses in a single year. And the lead court wasn't even the only court in the city. There was also a court where people could bring their own disputes, most of which centered around ownership of property. And there were church courts that heard cases concerning the parishioners' spiritual well-being. So if someone was, for example, having sex outside of marriage, they could be reported to the church courts. Or if someone was using excessive profanity, they could face a fine at the hands of the church. While the jurisdictions of these courts were separate, the secular and ecclesiastical courts were jealous of maintaining their legitimacy, and both of them wanted to be able to collect fines from the people. So you shouldn't be surprised to learn that from time to time, the elite courts, the ones that I've been talking about today, fined people for using the courts Christian for matters that were not pertaining to marriage or morality. Today, I've tried to use the elite courts to expose a little bit about what life would have been like in a medieval city. Norwich continued to grow in the 13th and early 14th centuries. Its elite court continued to function, and people continued to actively report problems to it. Then, in the mid-14th century, Norwich was hit by the Black Death, and it was hit hard. The best estimates suggest that the city lost approximately 70% of its population between 1348 and 1360. Unlike many other cities, Norwich rebuilt itself successfully. The Leet Court demonstrates increasing concern with keeping the city clean in the wake of the plague, because people in the Middle Ages did understand there was a connection between sanitation and disease. Norwich also started producing a new kind of cloth, worsted cloth, the exports of which allowed the city to rebuild its economic life. By the 16th century, while the elite courts still technically existed, their business was vastly curtailed, and men weren't really reporting themselves anymore. At least to me, that suggests a significant cultural change that came hand-in-hand hand with the demographic one. And in that, Norwich was not alone. I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode of Footnoting History. And if you did, you should get to know us better by visiting our website, where you'll find bios for all of our presenters and an archive of our episodes from the past 10 years. 
If you'd like to help us keep going, you can become a Patreon supporter, make a one-time donation on Ko-Fi, or pick out some of our merchandise. I personally really enjoy wearing my Henry VII Did It t-shirt. Thank you and have a good day.